Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. Then it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. How's it going there, Rob? I'm doing great. Why? Do I look bad? <laughs> <laughs> look like you had a little bit too much fun last night. Yeah, a little too much karaoke and scotch. Well, it happens. Yeah. I'm surprised my voice is uh, is, is in good shape after um, rapping Mama Said Knock You Out. <laughs> I guess I was channeling my inner LL Cool J last night. Dude, you killed it. Oh, man. I know nobody else was nobody else was going up there, so I got forced to go up there first. <laughs> I think as usual. Well, you went up there with me, so yeah, it was like simple man to to Mama said knock you out. <laughs> we need to have a good spirit normal karaoke night. Invite all of invite all our biggest fans. Oh yeah, everybody can come and partake in karaoke. I just want to see Doctor Future sing karaoke. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> That would be something else, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, through the joys of time travel, we are probably at this very moment hurtling back from Roswell, and I'm pretty sure to say that it was a pretty good time. 
Did you have fun, Rob, over there? I'm pretty sure that we did, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. So we're here, and tonight we've got Randall Carlson coming on. And this is one that uh, I'm kind of excited about because, you know, we had Randall on last year, and I was just like listening to that show just to kind of make sure that we didn't go over a lot in this in this interview that we're about to do. Um, but there is, I think we're going to get a little more specific into some of the things that he studies. Uh. And the reason have Randall on, because I listened to the Joe Rogan podcast that he was on, and this is about like three and a half hours, uh, podcast with him and Graham Hancock and Michael Shermer, Michael Shermer, of course, playing the, uh, playing the arch skeptic. So I wanted to kind of get into a little bit of like the details of some of that with Randall, talk about the younger Darius, talk about the comet impact and just whatever else kind of other topics will we want to talk about. Um, anything that you're interested in, in asking him, uh, the fire in Manistee. Yes. Yes. Like there was something that happened in your hometown that he talked that, about. Yeah. That he cited as like evidence. Yeah. Yeah, we will definitely ask him about that for sure. Um, but that's it, guys. I think that we will just do this little brief intro, and uh, we'll be back with Randall on Conspiracy Normal. What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. My name is Aaron David, and I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. <laughs> and welcome back to Conspire Normal. As we are on our way back from Roswell, you guys get a show. And uh, Rob's here. He's still exhausted. Still alive, though. Still alive. Yes, absolutely. And uh, someone else that uh, is here with us, who really, in my opinion, needs no introduction, and that's Mr. Randall Carlson. Randall, welcome back to Conspire Normal. Well, thanks for having me back, Adam, and putting up with me for another hour and a half. <laughs> Absolutely, Randall. Any 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 time. We we just had a little bit of a banter before about uh, Waffle House museums and uh, cell phone pagers and uh, libertarianism right before the show. So <laughs> that was as as enlightening as anything else that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, the reason that I got you back on and I've been wanting to get you back on for a while. You know, I'd love to have you back on at least once a year. Um, was recently you were on another podcast, the Joe Rogan podcast, which I'd say is a little bit, you know, uh, more well-known than ours. <laughs> so we appreciate well, you coming on. Being, anyway, Adam, yeah, exa- you know, exactly. Six months down the road, it might be a completely different story, but yeah, I'd love to have the millions of listeners that Joe Rogan has. So, 
<laughs> and to probably be as fit as that guy is in, in his mid-40s. But anyway. Well, maybe today we can get a start and get you like maybe 10 or 12 extra listeners. There we then... go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to be able to sell some supplements, you know, be nice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Randall, I, you were on with Graham Hancock, who's a good friend of yours. And, Hancock, yep. and Michael mm-hmm. Shermer, who's kind of the yep. arch skeptic, the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, or the editor of Skeptic Magazine, rather. And I kind of wanted to just get your thoughts on that interview. I'm sure that there's probably a lot of people uh, that have heard this by now. I mean, it is a rather long interview. It's about like three hours and 45 minutes long. And you know, I listened to it on a trip down to Atlanta, incidentally. And I uh, was pretty impressed by it. I, I, I really thought the best parts of it for me personally was when you came on and talked about kind of like the pure science. A lot of the first part, in my opinion, was a lot of haggling over or quibbling over certain kind of like reputation things and uh, different kinds of... Uh, it, it just wasn't, I, I felt as solid as the part where you came on. So thank you for that. But I just kind of want to get your thoughts on, on that interview and, and, uh, and we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Well, for me, it was a lot of fun. I was yeah. having a good time. Even though I was initially not saying a whole lot, I was listening, sizing up where everyone was coming from. And, um, you know, I'd like to say that I certainly understand um, Graham his his reaction because just prior to that you know he had um had a chance to read the hit piece that was being prepared on him which did mischaracterize and misrepresent his work and yeah, agreed he mm-hmm. was understandably upset about that i think anybody would be um it was not fair-minded and you know it, it's kind of like you know, you go in there, to me, you go in there and the idea is to everybody make their best case, go ahead and let's, you know, if we need to, you know, let's really get in each other's faces and, and, you know, go for a knockout punch. But at the time when it's over, you know, let's shake hands and, you know, say, Hey, you know, we gave it our best shot and, you know, um, good sportsmanship. That's to me what it's about. But thing was, is that I think, um, those guys, Shermer and Mark Defant, were not prepared, and they had more mm-hmm. chance to get prepared. They might have been able to make a more solid case for their side. I do want to say that there's a very important and critically important role for the skeptic who is going to challenge. And somebody who's really looking for the truth shouldn't mind getting challenged, shouldn't mind having uh, the holes in their game pointed out to them. You know, again, I'll use the martial arts, uh, martial, uh, arts metaphor, which is that you know, in a sense, you see a lot of these guys who become champions and you talk to them about, um, you know, they're, they're coming up and so on. And what they'll say is, you know, they'll had a loss or a couple of critical losses that really were of more benefit to them than their wins because it showed them the holes in their game. And I think you can apply that metaphor to the scientific realm as well. And, you know, because basically science is supposed to be about this, the search for the truth. And that's what we're supposed to all be there and all in agreement that this is why we're here, because we're looking to explain reality as accurately as we possibly can, right? So this should be a starting point where we're all in agreement, right? And then we should also agree then that 
We won't use ad hominem uh, arguments. We won't be constantly hitting red herrings to distract from what the, the central discussion is supposed to be all about. We won't make it personal. It did get personal, and part of it was personal yeah. at the beginning, and, and that's understandable. And I think Graham learned from it because he, in a sense, got 25 years of, of um, you know pent-up stuff off of his chest because – he, if you read a lot of, if you read his stuff, and then you read some of the attacks and criticisms of his stuff, more often than not, it's not really addressing the evidence that he's accumulated together. It's just attacking totally through this lens of we have a monopoly on cultural and historical reality, and anybody who varies from us is clearly a, a, a pseudoscientist or a crackpot or a charlatan, and and so much of the um, criticism directed against Graham was not directed against the work and the information and the data that he had collected together, but it was against him. And it was also against this idea that there might be more to the story than is officially recognized, you see. Um, but overall, you know, I think it came out good. You know, I, I think I ended up on a good note with Mark DeFant. I think that perhaps they both came in there, uh, Shermer and Defant, thinking that you know we're going to use our typical tactics that we use to, um, you know, to to challenge these heretical viewpoints. And in this case, it really just didn't work because uh, there is a lot of evidence that supports not only what I was saying, but what Graham was saying. You know, and Michael Shermer was not informed about Gobekli Tepe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mark Defant was, he's a volcanologist. If we had been debating something having to do with volcanology, I would have been pretty much humbly listening to what he had to say, but we weren't really debating that. We were debating when it got into the science realm, we were talking more about climate change and ice ages and mega floods and mass extinctions and things. And, and when we get into those departments, I'm pretty well studied. So if you're even if you're a geologist, you know there's so many subspecialties in the, in geology itself that you can focus on one of those areas and not know too much about another area. Yeah. So, in the topics that were germane to the whole idea under discussion, whether or not there might be the possibility of uh, ancient cultures that have been lost to history, um, you know, the question of paleo hydrology bears directly on that. You see, the the, the question of of you know what we're going to be talking about here in a bit the the climate changes for example from the Balling Alaro to the Younger Dryas transition then from the Younger Dryas transition into the Preboreal transition these were climate changes that were extreme they were rapid they were profound right. they were global catastrophic mm-hmm. they were catastrophic yes and unless you have studied specifically into that, you, you may know have a sense of it, but you're not going to know the details and you're probably not going to know how extensive the research is that is now coming together into this paradigm that suggests, yes, there was globally catastrophic events that happened in this transition from the Pleistocene to the Holocene, from the glacial age into the interglacial age, and it not only affected um, you know, biomes around the planet, which were dramatically changed. It affected, you know, uh, uh, species of animals because uh, the megafauna 
essentially nearly half of the, the, the planet species of megafauna did not survive that transition. It had, as we're now realizing, it definitely had cultural effects as well, because there are things we can, we can talk about some of that. But when you begin to look at the, um, for example, in North America, the Clovis occupation that, that seemed to proceed by several centuries, the uh, onset of the Younger Dryas, there was a fair amount of uh, cultural activity in North America that suddenly ceased right at that Younger Dryas boundary, which is the same time that the peak of the mass extinctions occurred. Um, that was uh, that, that, was, that was something that our good friends Micah Hanks and Jason Pintrell picked up on, with, especially with Shermer's uh, talking about how there was nothing pre-Clovis, which I guess is probably like 8,000 years ago. And so he was saying that there's nothing pre-Clovis, but there's all this proof. And Micah and Jason pretty much laid it out for me as well about how, you know, there's all these different um, inhabitants of North America going way back even before yes. Clovis. So like oh, e- yeah. even that he was like completely wrong about in so many uh-huh. ways. Yeah. He was not keeping up with, a lot of the latest research, which yeah. definitely is now pointing strongly to a pre-Clovis occupation of North America. Um, I mean, on many fronts, there's evidence emerging, which is, to a large extent, kind of it has been ignored by the, um, you know, by the proponents of the orthodox interpretations. But like so many things, the evidence is mounting steadily, and it's getting to the point now where it just can't be ignored anymore. Albert Goodyear out at the Topper site in South Carolina. Um, who who right. actually has mm-hmm. worked and co-authored paper with Malcolm LeCompte, who was on the Joe Rogan show. He's excavating and finding evidence of, of occupation of that site going back 50,000 years. Wow. And, of course, that's, you know, going completely outside the accepted models of what may or may not have been going on um, that long ago. But yeah, there's 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 definitely evidence uh, of of a pre-Clovis occupation of North America. There are interesting links um, and new discoveries pretty much every month. There's new stuff now that that's confirming uh, that yeah, there is a whole lot more to our history than you know than the conventional models recognized a generation or two ago. And and there are, there's still an entrenched. Um, basically bureaucracy, if you will, an academic bureaucracy built around those those older models of things, and they are going to defend those models, as, as rightly they should. Um, and again, for those of us that are proposing something alternate, it's up to us to make our case, um, and a strong case at that, and, and it's happening. That's, that's the thing. It's happening. Right. And it's, it's a lot uh, stronger now than it was 20 years ago, like when Graham first wrote um, Fingerprints of the Gods. Yes. He was attacked left and right, ridiculed about, oh, yeah, a, ca- a catastrophe. Yeah, some glo- Oh, there was this ancient civilization and some global catastrophe wiped it out. Well, this is not science fiction. This is history, you know, and we don't have things like that in real history. I mean, that was kind of the attitude. Uh, mm-hmm. If you go back and read some of the the, the reviews of Fingerprints of the Gods and what some of the, 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 the critics were saying. I mean, that was, in effect, really all it amounted to was a dismissal of these alternate possibilities. Well, at the time Graham wrote that book, the the evidence certainly superseded a, a cavalier dismissal, even back then. I mean, there was, since the 70s and 80s, there's been enough evidence to suggest that 
there's been a lot more to history than than recognized by the the orthodoxy. But you see, here's part of what you got to understand is that. <clears throat> Part of this shifting paradigm is the recognition that we're living on one hell of a dynamic planet and that this planet can and has frequently basically shaken itself. And, you know, in the process of going through these convulsions, whole species are, are lost uh, wholesale. Um, there's complete rearrangement of the global climate, the global environment, the, the, the um, you know, the Geologically and tectonically, there are alterations. Geomagnetically, there are alterations. I mean, the list goes on and on that we're understanding that change has been the only constant. And see, here's the other insight that, that's emerging out of this, is that once we went to apply this, this model of this basically sawtooth model rather than a nice smooth exponential curve, which has basically been the curve that has defined the ascent of history from, you know, couple of uh, 20 or 30 or 40,000 years of, of um, Stone Age barbarism, and then, you know, basically within the last millennium, we begin to see this nice, smooth arc coming up to the pinnacle of where we're at right now. And when in reality, the, um, the, the, the graph is more like a sawtooth. And we can certainly see that reflected in the, in the, in the biological and zoological level with the, uh, the uh, sudden... Uh, species loss during mass extinction events, and then the hiatus, and then the sudden, almost inexplicably fast re-speciation phenomena that occurs after a period of time when all of a sudden the fossil record is filled with a plethora of new species. But even as you apply this sawtooth model to um, to history, I mean to, to um, the biological history of the planet, you apply it to the geological history, and we discover that, that, that it applies as well because there are discontinuities throughout the entire geological record where one can see that there's two modes of change. There's one mode of change where it is a sort of a uniform continuum where it's a gradualistic phenomena, and then that's suddenly interrupted by these short periods where the pace of change has been accelerated exponentially. And in those short periods of time really is when all of the action is taking place. Now, that same model that we apply to the geological realm, to the biological and evolutionary realm, we're realizing it applies to the historical realm as well. And just as species rise up and go extinct, civilizations rise up and go extinct. And yes, absolutely. The, the, You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yes. And. And the thing that causes the extinctions of both is probably the same, just on different orders of magnitude. Because we certainly don't need, say, an extinction-level event like we had at the Cretaceous-Tertiary boundary when the um, dinosaurs went extinct, right? And the Ammonites and all of these other amazing uh, creatures that lived on the Earth at the end of the Cretaceous, right? Something far, far, far less than that could pull the plug on civilization and send humanity right back to the Stone Age. Right. I mean, we were given a little taste of, of what can happen, um, say, during the Little Ice Age, which is something we need to talk about it, too, also as well, because in the whole climate change debate or non-debate, depending on who you're talking to, <laughs> there is an effort to try to now pin 
the bulk or even all of climate change on the activities of humans. And this would be a disastrous mistake if we were to shift our entire focus onto the anthropogenic effect on climate to the neglect of the natural forces that have been work at work since the planet first came into existence. This would be a disastrous mistake because it would leave us completely unprepared for the kind of catastrophic natural change that has happened over and over and over and over again on this planet. Randall, the dates of the Little Ice Age, I believe, what is that, like 1300 A.D. to about 1850? Is that correct? Yeah, you know, the Little Ice Age was not a smooth, unbroken area of climate. It had phases. The first phase kicked in at around 1320. Um... It didn't happen like in a single year. It took decades, but it was a shift that affected, we now know it was global. Um, for a long time, it was disputed whether it was just a regional effect, primarily focused on Central Europe. And the reason was is because most of the data that we had was from Europe. So the question was, well, you know, since all this data is from Europe, then the Little Ice Age was confined to Europe. But we now know from climate change proxies of all kinds that goes beyond, say, the historical record, that, yeah, it was a signal that was, that was propagated uh, globally, clearly. It now, was it didn't only, in the nor- only in the northern hemisphere, though, right? No, no, no. no, no, global. no. It, it showed okay. up. It showed up. Studies in New Zealand are showing it up. Right. Uh, even in Antarctica, there are studies that show um, a cooling during the, li- the Little Ice Age. Now, what brought us out of it around 1850? Well, that's or just a natural occurrence, or well, d- d- good question. I feel that human activity may have contributed to it, but it wouldn't have contributed much in 1850. Um, well, that's because, right around the time of industrialization, right? But but you know, early in industrialization, what we're talking about is there was not a lot of carbon dioxide, but there was a lot of particulate matter. Now, particulate sure. matter is not going to warm the climate. It's not going to do what, what carbon dioxide does, which is a greenhouse gas. It's going to cause actually a cooling. The significant amounts of carbon dioxide really didn't kick in until around World War II. Um, prior to that, you know, I mean, you can see that there's a, a an ascending curve of, of, of hydrocarbon consumption starting in the late, 19, late 1800s. Um, but it really took off during the Second World War. And I don't think you're going to find any atmospheric physicist that's going to argue that the insignificant amounts of anthropogenic CO2 prior, say, definitely to World War One and back to the time of, of 1850, that that would have had a uh, discernible effect on the global climate. So the fact that a, early in the Industrial Revolution, the pollution that was going in the air primarily would have a cooling effect because it's particulate matter, it's dust. It's going to be material that um, is going to reflect sunlight. It's going to reflect heat back into space generally and create a, a shroud um, just in the same way that uh, a sure. volcanic eruption sure. is going to uh, eject particulate matter into the atmosphere or and that a, can cause a global cooling. Or a nuclear war, yeah. Or a nuclear war, exactly, uh, the, uh. the nuclear winter scenario, or which which is literally borrowed from the cosmic winter scenario that was first being proposed in the early 1980s. That's what led the, the, the theorists to think, well, 
if an impact, because, you know, in 1980 was the, the publication of the three papers uh, espousing some variation of cosmic impact at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, killing off the dinosaurs. And immediately after that, somebody, um, I'll think of his name in a minute, started applying those ideas to, well, if, if an impact could put this much dust into the atmosphere and cause, you know, hemispheric or continental-wide um, fires of things and which put soot and smoke into the atmosphere and it has an effect of that they were calling cosmic winter what does what happens in the event of a nuclear war and and it was basically the same yeah the fires and the soot and the dust would would cause the onset of of a very severe global cooling so the fact is we don't know yet what i'm liking to think that it was the sun because the last phase of the Little Ice Age was associated with the Maunder Minimum, which was a a, um, a decline in solar activity, um, which then seemed to shift gears around the late, late 1800s and become active again. Um, there's a lot of very interesting studies on the relation between the sun and the global climate that are generally being ignored by the proponents of uh, carbon dioxide-induced anthropogenic warming, for the most part. You don't find a lot of solar physicists on the, uh, in the IPCC, um, which, well, is, which is too bad, because well, that's, clearly the sun has a role to play. Sure, absolutely. I mean, what, it, it makes total sense. But the, the, here's the interesting thing about it, and I, I don't want to get too caught up on this point, because this is like a whole other show, honestly, but... Sure. You know, it's it's like the the language and the ideas have really changed over time. So, like in the seventies, they were talking, and when I say they, the scientific establishment, they were talking about global cooling. Okay, yeah. that gradually through the eighties and nineties, early two thousands, that became global warming, and now they have global warming. The whole that phraseology has changed to climate change which honestly could mean anything from uh from any kind of source whether that be man-made the sun whatever right well here there's a yes and and i've noticed a lot of the uh the critics of global warming coming primarily from the right are very dismissive of that um that concern, if you will, in the seventies about a return of the ice age, but mm-hmm. to some extent it was justified for, for two reasons. You know, when the, the little ice age ended, there was considerable warming up until the 1940s. Um, in fact, if you look at the data from North America, 19, the 1930s was the hottest decade of the 21st century. The, I dust, mean, the, the dust bowl, century. the dust bowl. Yes. It was during precisely the de- the Dust Bowl, yes, the 1930s, and to this day, of the 50 states in America, which includes Alaska and Hawaii, of the 50 states, 25 of those states, half of them, 50%, their all-time highest recorded temperature was in the 1930s. So half of the records for for state all-time high temperatures were in the 1930s, and they haven't been broken since, right? There's been one, I believe, one state, and I think it was North or South Dakota that has set a record in the 21st century for being the all-time highest uh, uh, recorded temperature. But see, that's interesting. So what I'm getting at is is we had a, a very significant warming up until the 1940s, right around the time, interestingly, that 
of, of World War II, when we really started burning fossil fuels big time, not only in the war effort, but also with the proliferation of automobiles and coming out of World War II, there was a massive proliferation of of automobile use in the in the late 1940s and early 1950s, sure. precisely when we started putting major contributions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the planet started undergoing a 25 to 30 year cooling period. And, and, the, between, and the rise of the developing nations, the third world, yeah, yeah. that as well. And so in the 1970s, we were still at the end of this cooling period, which gave way to the uh, another mini warming period that began in the early 1980s. But so you've got the mid 70s. Okay. Now two things. Planet's been cool. Even though it's been a gentle cooling, it has been cooling and it, and it had repercussions. There were uh, agricultural repercussions because there were several years running where there were uh, declining agricultural yields as a result of this this slight cooling that occurred, and then that in turn had had economic repercussions. But the, but at the same time, in the early nineteen early to mid nineteen seventies, what you've got is a um, a database that has now gotten substantial enough that that inferences can be made from it. And that database is essentially the the, the body of radiocarbon dated organic material that has been dated. Since the early 1950s, when radiocarbon dating method was first uh, invented by by Libby, they had had accumulated a lot of data on the timing of climate change, particularly as it related to the onset and termination of the ice ages. Now, prior to radiocarbon dating, it was mainly assumptions that were were used to estimate durations and spans of time, and and based upon what what had been observed at the end of the Little Ice Age and the rates of glacial recession that were taking place even then from the, say, 1825 to 1850 up until the early 1900s, they extrapolated from that and said, well, if we assume that there was an Antarctic-sized ice mass over North America, how long would it take to disappear based upon rates of glacial recession that we have witnessed today. And from there, you come up with 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 years, right? And so the assumption was, is that there was these, that there was these long protracted glacial age. It was, the planet slowly shifted in. Along with that came the Milankovitch um, theory, which is that due to the changing orbital geometries, the changing geometric relationship between the Earth and the Sun, having to do with the Earth's precessional wobble, having to do with the tilt of its axis, having to do with the obliquity of the ecliptic, and so on, it's going to change the amount of, of solar radiation reaching the surface of the Earth. And the assumption then was is that these changing amounts were enough to caused the planet to shift back and forth between glacial and interglacial ages. And the whole process might take 100,000, might take 200,000 years. Okay, so this is the thinking. Now here comes radiocarbon dating. So guess what happens? You start finding out, well, let's see, here's evidence of pollen from uh, forest growth in Canada, and we date it, and it's 40,000 years old. Well, then obviously where these trees were growing, 40,000 years ago, there wasn't an ice cap, right? And then dating 
the um, material left behind in the moraines, for example, when the ice actually began to recede. You can say, okay, when the ice moves forward, it's like a bulldozer, oversimplified, but it's like a bulldozer. It moves this, it grinds up this material from the earth, pushes it forward. There will be organic material in there. There might be remains of plants. There might be animal remains, bones, there might be pieces of trees, we can radiocarbon date that, and it's going to give us some sense of when all of this happened. Then we can see that there is recessional moraines when the glaciers were receding back and disappearing. Well, then it became apparent that there was the glaciers were there fully intact, in effect, 15 to 20,000 years ago. And then by eight to 10,000 years ago, they were gone. And now here's the conundrum. How do we explain something that's going to be three or four times as rapid as our previous models allowed? So that became the, that became the difficulty there. And mm. then it became apparent as more and more radiocarbon dating comes in that that climate had been a whole lot more dramatic and dynamic than anybody had imagined. And then now what happens is that they're looking at evidence to suggest how long of duration was there between the fully glacial ages and the interglacial ages? In other words, we are now in an interglacial age, right? right. Mm -hmm. We have been in this interglacial age for, you know, between 10 and 11,000 years. Well, as they begin to accumulate more data from, a, from multiple proxies that allowed them to reconstruct these episodes of glacial expansion and glacial contraction, the, the, the temperature changes between interglacial warmth and glacial cold, it became apparent by the mid to late 70s that these changes were happening a lot quicker than anybody had imagined, and the duration of these interglacial warm periods didn't appear to be any longer than the ones that we're in now, and in fact, most of them seem to be considerably shorter. So now you have two things and this is where I'm getting back to, you have this idea that, okay, we're living in an interglacial age, but the evidence would point to the fact that interglacial ages have been relatively short. Also, at the same time, you've got the fact that the climate has been cooling for 25 years, demonstrably, measurably cooling. Well, okay, so that's the situation in the 70s. Now you've got another group of scientists who are looking at carbon dioxide and going, well, wait a second, you guys need to be thinking about the fact that we're increasing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that's going to increase the, the, the greenhouse effect, which is going to trap more heat in the troposphere, and it's going to cause atmospheric warming, which will then cause surface warming. And yeah, so we're actually headed for, for greater warmth. Now, at the same time, these guys are proposing that um, the climate is cooling. So nobody was paying attention to them. Okay, now here comes the 1980s, and guess what happens? The climate starts warming again. Now they start getting the attention, and the fact is is that global warming has one factor different from global cooling. At the time global cooling was being proposed, it was basically considered to be an entirely natural process, not the consequence of human activity, unless locally or regionally, you know, like if over an urban area you had a lot of smog, that could cause cooling of the local or the region. Sure. But on the global yeah. scale, it was not really relevant. Right. But now with global warming, you have this difference, major difference. Because the amount of CO2 going into the atmosphere is directly related to human activities, 
Now you have that factor that you didn't have with global cooling. In mm-hmm. 1988, James Hansen, in a very hot July, I think it was in July, made this um, uh, statement before Congress in, in a sense where he was throwing down the gauntlet and saying this is the greatest um, environmental uh, issue of our time, this increasing in greenhouse gas. And interestingly, one of the politicians that was supportive of him made sure that the air conditioning in the um, in the room they were meeting in was not working that day, so that everybody <laughs> was sweating away while he's talking about and about how hot every the world's going to get. It's like psychological torture. Yes. So here, so here's the difference. <laughs> Global warming is amenable to control because it's now being the result of human activity, global cooling was not amenable to being controlled because it was natural. So it gave no um, excuse to control the activities of humans, whereas global warming now is basically seen as the result of humans' energy consumption. And given that energy is such a huge part of the global economy, if you've got control of energy, let's say production, distribution, consumption, you pretty much have control of everything. So there was a big motive right there to to push the global warming agenda. And then you had the rise of environmentalism, which, of course, I'm all for in multiple ways, sure. protecting the environment of the earth from all kinds of pollution and, and, and desecration and defilement and so on. Yeah, absolutely. But the th- thing is, is that the the environmental movement came out of the 1960s into the 1970s is when it really began to get momentum. Okay. In, when the first Earth Day, April 1970, right? At that point, the uniformitarian gradualist models of Earth change were totally dominant. Anything outside of that was just complete fringe, wacko, you know, um, you know, laughed at, dismissed. This was the Emmanuel Velikovsky's who were so uh, condescendingly uh, derided by the the scientific establishment and so on. It was strictly gradualistic. Everything changes one inch of sand and one drop of water at a time. The, the, um, the, The radiocarbon dating and other proxy evidence that was coming in had not taken hold yet. To, to demonstrate that, yeah, the planetary environment has been extremely dynamic. So the environmental, modern environmental movement was born in an era when the dominant thinking about Earth change was this very slow, drawn-out, protected. And, and now, in that as a backdrop, the activities of human beings assume a much greater prominence because... Basically, the idea is, well, nothing much has changed for thousands and thousands of years until now the Industrial Revolution and human beings are now causing more change than has ever happened before. (laughs) And this became the dominant idea of environmentalism, now that environmentalism has a very powerful and strong political foothold. That has become the meme that is being um, promoted, and even though it's completely obsolete. And so... What is there's still, you know, there was a thing posted where, um, you know, Rick Perry, who I'm no big fan of, was basically um, 
having an argument, debate, discussion, whatever you want to call it, with um, oh, the former SNL guy that's now senator from Minnesota. Al Franken. Al Franken, yeah. So Rick Perry is saying, well, I think we need to have a red team and a blue team and let the politicians get out of the way and let the scientists that are advocating global warming and the scientists that have uh, issues with it get together and, and basically discuss it. And then it shifts over to uh, Franken and basically Al Franken's saying, no, it's all settled. There's no, there's no debate. Um, so you have one side saying, let's debate, and you're having the other side trying to shut down debate. And Al Franken, for whatever his intentions might be, doesn't know what he's talking about, because the debate has not even begun yet. And he's, you know, he's citing one study that I read you know, when it first came out a couple of years ago, and it does not close the debate. It leaves many questions open. And you know, I find it interesting that you have two sides now, one side calling for debate, and the other side saying there's no need for debate because it's all settled. But yet what he's doing is he's basically speaking from this perspective that goes back 50 years, which is that nothing much has changed on this planet until humans came along and started driving SUVs. <laughs> now, in effect, yeah. So, yeah. So now we have to use this as the excuse to control the activities of human beings. But what they're doing is they're ignoring the ever-mounting mountain of evidence that the planet has changed catastrophically with no help from humans, and it has done it over and over again on every time scale that we can, we can measure it. And you see, this is why I'm saying that, uh, and have been saying now for a decade or more, you know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be um, extremely problematic, I think, in our future if we ignore natural environmental change, natural climate change, and focus exclusively and, and, and repeat this idea that humans are the sole and dominant cause of climate change. Right, um, right, yeah. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from on that, Randall. I really can. I, I want to talk about, before we get into the kind of the younger Dryas, um, let's talk about kind of like the history of ice ages, like where, um, like what's the first ice age down to... Like what? Because you you say that you know the interglacial period. So we have an ice yeah. age and interglacial. So what's the what's the dates of these and and when did they start? Well, there have been multiple periods that look like epochs of of glaciation on the planet yeah. that go back you know several hundred million years. But the 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 sequence of glacial interglacial changes that we're in now seems to go back to about the transition from the Pliocene to the Pleistocene epochs, which is now being dated to right around 2.6 million years ago. And so it seems that about 2.6 million years ago, there was a major shift from a long period of stable, late Pliocene warmth into this oscillating pendulum of glacial-interglacial ages. That's what seems to characterize the Pleistocene, the transition there, about 2.6 million years ago. That's, I think, the latest dating. Within that, you know, the complexity of these changes is just, I mean, as we're speaking, it's being worked out, and it's extremely complex. Like I said, you know, the record is far, far more dynamic than anybody had even imagined a generation or two ago. And so I can't say with any you know definitive conclusions here when exactly there was glacial and interglacial ages, other than, you know, we're pretty 
clear on going back around 140,000 to 150,000 years, maybe. The last period that appears, <clears throat> excuse me, to be roughly similar to our own was the what's called the Emian, E-E-M-I-A-N. I'm not an expert on Emian, but it seemed to have lasted. It was in a period from like 120 to 130,000 years ago. Um, and it was considered to be the closest analog to the Holocene, which is the 10,000-year interglacial period that we're now in. Um, however, I've seen some interesting new evidence that suggests even the Emian, that there was several uh, dynamic events throughout the Emian that maybe suggest it wasn't really that close of an analog for the Holocene after all. But basically, for the last 100,000 to 105,000 years, the planet has been colder than now. Um, but there have been several periods in there where it apparently got as warm as now or close to it, because you can see these from, from several different venues of, of research. I mentioned earlier, for example, finding evidence of forests growing uh, in Canada between, say, 30,000 and 50,000 years ago. Well, not so long ago, it was believed that 30 to 50,000 years ago, uh, Canada was buried under a thick mantle of, of glacial ice, an ice cap, if you will. And finding evidence that there were forests growing near Hudson Bay or or, you know, in Manitoba or, or some of these areas 40,000 years ago clearly suggested if the, if the ice cap wasn't completely gone, it was massively shrunk compared to what it was, say, 20 to 25,000 years ago. What it appears is that there was a period of, of, of warmth that might have lasted from like 26 to 28,000 years ago back to about 40 or 45,000 years ago. It hasn't been called an interglacial. In fact, there was a new word that was invented. It was called an interstadial. And an interstadial would be like an interglacial, but not as warm, not quite as warm. Just like in our interglacial, now there is no great ice sheet over Canada. There is no great ice sheet over northwestern Europe. If we go back fifteen to 20,000 years ago, there were massive ice sheets. I mean, the ice sheet right. over... North America was continental. It, it reached from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It reached from the northern United States up to the Arctic Circle. The Fennoscandian ice sheet over over northwestern Europe was it was huge. It was at least as big as the ice cap that is now over Greenland. So basically, you had nearly thirty percent of the planet's land surface covered by ice. You know, twenty say twenty thousand years ago. Wow. So an interstadial is a period where the climate warms, the ice begins to recede back. It may not disappear completely like it has now. You know, now we're what's called a full interglacial period. Interstadial is going to be much warmer than a glacial. It's going to be not quite as warm as an interglacial. The ice will have shrunk back but not disappeared completely. Because of the shrinking back of the ice, the sea levels will rise they may not rise to the same level they're at now, but they're going to be close to it. And so what it appears is that maybe around 26 to 40,000 years ago, the planet was in, in, in an interstadial, and the ice shrunk back. And then around 26,000 years ago, the, the, the climate switch shifted, and we see rapid cooling setting in, and post around 26 or 27,000 years ago, there was a very rapid expansion of northern hemisphere glacial ice, very rapid. So that within about 5,000 years, 6,000 years, it was 
had reached continental proportions. The rate of growth is one of the inexplicables there. What triggered the shift is an inexplicable, is an unknown at this point. But so then you have the onset of a full glacial period. And so 18 to 22,000 years ago, sea levels were at least 400 feet depressed from what they are now. There was masses of ice, you know, covering Northwestern Europe, Northern North America, um, you know, all of the area that would now be where New York City is, Philadelphia, Boston, Detroit, uh, Milwaukee, the Twin Cities, Seattle, um, all of these northern cities were, those areas were buried under several thousand feet of ice. <laughs> so then somewhere around 14,600 years ago, there's a sudden inexplicable rapid warming. And there's a huge meltback of the ice and a huge gush of meltwater into the oceans and a very rapid pulse of sea level rise. And this has been called meltwater pulse 1A. And then at about 12,900 years ago, there's a sudden another spasm of warming. And in the interim, what you've got, and now this fits with what I was saying earlier about the Milankovitch uh, forces, which is this long, slow um, changing geometries between the Earth and the Sun, changing the amount of solar radiation. During this very end part of the, of the last ice age, from about Fourteen to 15,000 years ago, down to about 11,000 years ago, the Milankovitch forces were, were, were confluing in such a way that they were uh, creating a global warming. And the shrinking back of the ice sheets is consistent with this gradual, gentle warming uh, of the planet right there at the end of the Ice Age. However, the rapid meltwater pulse at 14,600 is not consistent with that. So it's almost like something piggybacked on top of these longer, slower forces. Then at 12,900, something else happens. And this is where um, basically um, archaeologists looking at around sites, looking at sites of uh, human occupation during the end of the Ice Age, um, were looking at the sites of the people that lived there during the Ice Age. These people were called the Clovis people because the first place the evidence of their presence was found was at Blackwater Draw in New Mexico, which is just outside of Clovis, New Mexico. So they took their name from that. Um, We're going to be driving through there in a couple of days, actually. <laughs> are you really? Yeah, yeah. Clovis, Clovis is on the way to Roswell, so we're going to be driving through you're it. You're going to have yeah. a, a little bit of time, because if you did, you should divert down to Blackwater Draw and have a look. And Oh, really? And talk okay. to the people down. Yeah, you should. I mean, they, they have a little visitor center there, and when I was there, I forget her name, there was the head archaeologist on the site. I got to spend an hour, hour and a half talking with her about their research and unpublished stuff that had been going on there, and they have a little display. You can learn about the first findings of what that was, what was the significance of that site at Blackwater Draw was the first place that um, there was definite proof of the association of humans with extinct megafauna. And so the, the, the transition from Pleistocene to Holocene was defined not so much by the climate change that took place as it was by the disappearance of the megafauna, um, which was pretty much complete by 11,000 to 11,500 years ago. 
So getting back to it, so let's let's recap. At about fourteen six, you've got a meltwater pulse. You've got that dumps into the ocean. This shows up a change in the oxygen isotope ratios of the ocean. Uh, it can actually see where the sea level came up and stabilized temporarily and created a shoreline, which is now I forget exactly maybe three hundred feet below sea level. Um, then at twelve thousand nine hundred, something happened, and there was a. a essentially almost an instantaneous warming followed almost by an instantaneous cooling. And so the Milankovitch forces, which had been gently warming the earth, were suddenly interrupted, and the planet went back into full glacial mode for about 1,300 years. And this brings us up to 11,600 years ago, and then there was another major dramatic warming spike. There was a major meltback of the ice sheets, a huge dump of meltwater into the ocean, which uh, led to the um, what is now called meltwater pulse 1B. So we have these three events, meltwater pulse 1A at about 14.6. Then we have the bottom of the Younger Dryas boundary at 12.9. And then we have meltwater pulse 1B at about 11,600. Now, what makes the Younger Dryas boundary at 12,900 years particularly interesting is the fact that at that layer, in about half of the Clovis sites now, of the 50 or so Clovis sites that have been uh, excavated and looked at, there's a black mat layer, very distinctive black mat layer. And um, a number of the archaeologists looking at this had concluded that perhaps one reason it was black was because there was so much organic material in it, including uh, carbonized material or soot, and uh, which would suggest the possibility of, of widespread fires associated with that period. But it was something else was interesting about it is that below it you would find the artifacts of the Clovis culture. You know the various tools, the the um, the flakes and the the spear points and things, but never above it. And then you also found below it the remains of the extinct megafauna, but never above it. So it clearly looked like this was a boundary of some kind that affected North America, not only um, biologically in terms of the disappearance of the megafauna, but also culturally, because it coincided with the disappearance of the Clovis culture, which led to a closer inspection. And in 2007, that's when Richard Firestone <clears throat> uh, began with his colleagues to find the proxy evidence of some type of an extraterrestrial event. And this ignited a major controversy that is still going on. And this was part of what was brought up in the Joe Rogan podcast is the discussion about this. And, you know, Malcolm Lecompte that, that Graham and I brought on yeah. was, is one of the experts in that. And what's interesting about what Malcolm Lecompte did is that when this was first proposed, this idea that um, that uh, possibly the Earth had been struck by something from space, and that this may have then contributed to the extinction of the megafauna, may have contributed to the disappearance of the Clovis culture, it also may have contributed to the rapid climate change that was now well documented to have occurred, uh, you know, in multiple spasms as the planet is shifting gears out of the ice age because i should backtrack for just a second and say that in 1993 
you had the grip and the GISP ice cores that became available for the first time, which was the result of an American team and a European team drilling through the summit of the Greenland ice core all the bed all the way to bedrock and extracting these these ice cores. And one of the first things that showed up in these ice cores uh, was that there had been these extreme spasms of climate change that had occurred, especially coming right out of the ice age. And one could begin to correlate now these extreme spasms of climate change that were clearly recorded in the ice core proxies with the mass extinction event and with the the, the disappearance of the Clovis. And so these things are now becoming correlated, and, and it was being proposed by Firestone and his colleagues that eventually came to include uh, Alan West and, and James Kennett and Douglas Kennett and a few others initially that formed a core group of this, looking at the evidence for some kind of an extraterrestrial impact. Then at the same time, you have another group that sort of consolidated uh, around the um, the the belief that this was a heresy that needed to be suppressed. And so you have these two contending groups, and the skeptics of the impact hypothesis are basically dismissing the whole thing and saying that... Um, you know, the results have not been replicated. They went out in the field and attempted to replicate the results and were not able to do so. And so, uh, you know, in science, one of the important things that you do is replication of experiments. And if somebody does something and claims certain results and then other people attempt to replicate it and they can't do it, well, then that certainly casts doubt into the veracity of that particular theory. If they do replicate it, of course, then it, it you know, makes the, the, the plausibility of the theory much, much more um, realistic. So in this case, you had the team that, that went out and they couldn't replicate the findings and said, well, we looked and we did not find the impact proxies that you claim to find, like the megaspheral, I mean, the magnetic spherules and the nanodiamonds and so on. Therefore, we don't need to go to the impact hypothesis. Well, I, I need to say this, that that a large number of the people that are opposed to the idea of an impact hypothesis as the trigger for these things are also proponents of what is known as the ill overkill hypothesis. Do you know what that is? No. It's also been referred to as the Blitzkrieg hypothesis. Okay. In a nutshell, what that is, is the idea the humans coming across okay. the Bering Land Bridge gotcha. left down yeah. into North America, exterminating all of the megafauna as they went, and actually were so effective mass killers that they were able to, within less than a millennium, kill off half the species of the Western Hemisphere, all the way down to from Alaska to Tierra, Tierra del Fuego. Right, right. This was the idea. And, and, but yet, when you begin to look at the anthropological models, basically they're saying, well, whatever migrants came across the Bering Land Bridge were probably hunting small game, uh, because for one thing, they're migrants, and you kill a woolly mammoth, and now you've got, what, five tons of meat? And what are you going to do with that? You know, now you're you're stuck there with... <laughs> or woolly rhinoceros. Exactly. <laughs> they're fishing... Um, they're, they're, they're hunter-gatherers. They're, there's no doubt that Clovis people hunted woolly mammoths. Yeah. They did. Yeah. Um, what you've got is about a half a dozen sites 
that show a correlation between the existence of, of Clovis people and extinct megafauna. But that doesn't mean that roving bands of paleo-Indian hunters of maybe two dozen people with spears was able to exterminate <laughs> 40 million animals from Siberia to Tierra del Fuego. It, it makes no sense. Maybe if they had AK-47s, that might make sense. Yeah, if they had AK-47s. You know, people, I've, I've had people <laughs> defending that idea say, well, look at the buffalo. You know, the buffalo, we almost right. exterminated the buffalo. Right, right, yeah, right. right. We had trains and we had high-powered repeating rifles, too. And yep. we also had a government bounty of, of $10 a hide placed on the buffalo, which gave a big incentive to people to kill them because, you know, old what's-his-name, uh, oh, who was in charge of the Indian campaign to protect the, the interests of the railroads against the Plains Indians. He the, was the guy who said the only good Indian is Sherman. a bad Indian. Not Sherman, Sheridan, uh, Sheridan, Sheridan, Philip yeah. Sheridan. It was Sheridan who came uh, up with the wonderful plan that, hey, we could commit genocide against the, the Plains Indians by pulling their, their economic rug out from under them, which is the, which is the buffalo. Well, so, Randall, I mean, the, the, the Indians themselves did not exterminate the buffalo, and they used them no. as a primary food source. That's why it was so important <clears throat> to kill off the buffalo to kill exactly. the Indians. Yeah. <clears throat> That's exactly right. So you can't really use the near extermination of the buffalo as, as an analog for what happened at the end of the of the Ice Age when we're talking about roving bands of Paleo-Indian hunters on foot, mind you, with spears. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the idea to me is, you know, when you talk to hunters who, who know anything about hunting, especially bow hunters, I think they would roll their eyes thinking, yeah, you're going to exterminate you know, perhaps 10 or 12 million woolly mammoths from Siberia, from all across Eurasia, North America, South America, um, so fast that they can't reproduce. I mean, no, you, you, what you have to have is you have to have something that operates over a large scale almost instantaneously. Because, yeah, you, you might be able to go and, and exterminate, you know, woolly mammoths in one area, one local area. But, you know, over two continents, three continents, uh, you know, <clears throat> but here's what I'm getting at. You have factions out there that are promoting that idea in spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that the idea had been losing credibility over the last couple of decades. Um, it's been revived in recent years. And, and I can tell you why it's been revived because I've seen it invoked the, the megafaunal extinction being invoked multiple times by those who are now advocating the idea that we are in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction in Earth history. And we humans, unlike the late Devonian or the um, late Ordovician or the Permian-Triassic or the Cretaceous-Tertiary, this mass extinction is being caused by humans. And Exhibit A, 1A, to buttress our argument that humans are capable of exterminating whole species is the late Pleistocene megafaunal extinction. And so they've been reviving the idea that humans killed off the megafauna. And what you see is a high correlation between advocates of that idea and those who are doing everything they can to suppress or dismiss or ignore the impact hypothesis. Because obviously, if it's something from space, then it 
humans had nothing to do with it. Yeah. In fact, you go the next step then, if it was from something extraterrestrial, which is not at all science fiction-y or not at all out of the question, and if you believe it is, you really haven't been paying attention for the last decade or two. But, you know, if if it is something external, well, then humans were probably victims as well. And now the evidence is mounting, a considerable body of evidence is mounting that, yes, humans were drastically affected, and this is why we see the sudden disappearance of the Clovis culture at the same time we see the disappearance of the megafauna. We don't see the appearance of another post, um, you know, post-Pleistocene or post-Ice Age uh, culture until the Folsom show up 500 to 1,000 years later after this hiatus, you know, after the Younger Dryas boundary. And they have very distinct toolkits. I mean, if you look at the, the Clovis artifacts, they're very distinct from the Folsom artifacts. And they apparently had different, you know, the Folsom people came along post-catastrophe. The Clovis people got caught in the catastrophe the Folsom people were the people that came in and colonized post-catastrophe. Let me ask so, you. Well, my well, point is there's a political agenda uh, right. that's contaminating the science. Right. Well, don't you love how that always comes into that? Always uh, comes into that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I want to ask you this. The Younger Dryas. First of all, where does the Younger Dryas get its name? And second From, of all... Okay. Um, How long does it last? I think we, we, we kind of went through that, but how long does it last? And, you know, Gobekli Tepe, is it around from the same time as the Younger Dryas? Good questions. Answer the first question. Younger Dryas gets its name from the uh, a wildflower called um, Dryas octopetala, which is a flower that grows in cold climates. And during the Ice Age, there were places in Northern Europe where uh, Dryas octopetala grew. And then during that late glacial warming, it disappeared. And then suddenly, around 12,900 to 13,000 years ago, it shows up again, which was clearly evidence of a major climate shift. And I think the, the the studies of Dryas octopetala probably go back at least 20 or 30 years. And so you had the younger Dryas and you had the older Dryas. The older Dryas was going back to about 15,000 years ago prior to this gentle warming that began to kick in at, right at the end of the Ice Age. So that was the older Dryas. I mean, that was when they were seeing the, the evidence of this particular type of polar wildflower growing in Europe. Then it disappears, and it's gone for, what, a couple of thousand years, and then it suddenly shows up again. And so this became the Younger Dryas. And the Younger Dryas lasted for about twelve or 1,300 years, and it seems to come to a very sudden end right around 11,600 years ago, and its sudden end seems to coincide with meltwater Pulse 1B and a major meltwater event um, that further shrank back the ice masses over uh, um, the Northern Hemisphere, caused a rapid rise in sea level, and then over the next few thousand years after the end of the Younger Dryas, which this transition is called the Younger Dryas pre-boreal, um, having to do mainly with the type of, of uh, trees that were growing 
um, in, as the ice receded, you know, the forests began to, to follow the receding ice. Um, so then you had between about 11,600 years and maybe 7,500 years to 8,000 years ago, the remaining ice, the residual ice then melted away. And so you had a couple of rapid pulses of sea level rise followed by a much gra- more gradual sea level rise as it's slowing down as the the remaining ice begins to melt away. And between six and 8,000 years ago, sea levels stabilized roughly where they're at now. Um, there's evidence that during the climatic optimum or hypsothermal that lasted from about seven to 9,000 years ago, sea levels may have been a couple of feet higher than now. Um, I don't have those studies in front of me, but yeah, there are studies that suggest a, a an actual period of planetary warmth warmer than now that used to be called the climatic optimum because it was considered a time of very beneficial environment uh, for post-glacial recovery of the planetary biosphere. Now it's called the hypsothermal, which seems to kind of get around the possibility that we're implying that you know, a warmer period might be a a more beneficial period. Um, But in any case, sea levels have fluctuated probably by several feet up and down throughout the entire Holocene, which is, you know, again, the last 10,000 years. Usually in the older textbooks, the Holocene was put at at 10,000 years. Lately, they've been placing the boundary of the Holocene at that younger, driest pre-boreal. So in other words, it's 11,600 years ago. Okay. which coincides with meltwater pulse one B, and and you got to understand that that the climate may shift um, very rapidly, but the the consequences of that may not show up immediately. You know, in other words, if you've got a type of a northern forest that's growing in an area, and then the climate suddenly gets warm, and you've got uh, northern acclimated trees like larch trees and alder trees and things, they die away and then you get pine trees showing up, which like more warm, let's say. Well, the thing is, is that the, the, the shift in temperature, the shift in climate may be something that happens in three or four or five years. What shows up in the pollen record or in the record of the, the forests that are growing there may be a couple of centuries so that's you've got to keep that in mind when you're trying to calibrate these dates. Gotcha. But in any case, the Holocene is now considered to be, um, if you want to put a precise point of demarcation, it's usually given about eleven five or eleven thousand six hundred years ago. Which I always find interestingly coincidental that Plato gave that date uh, at least <laughs> at, at three times, three times sure. in his dialogues Timaeus and Critias in talking about the great global change that ended not only Atlantis, but the pre-Hellenic uh, Greek culture that lived on the Greek peninsula. He also talks about that being destroyed at the same time Atlantis is. And he gives that date as 9,000 years before Solon's exile in Egypt, which took place in 600 B.C. So anybody can do the math on that. You're going to come up with 11,600 years ago. Mm. So I find that interesting. Uh, I also you find, find that interesting. interesting, too. That's that's yeah. fascinating. And I also find it very interesting that his preface, his introduction into the story of Timaeus, is to recount the history or, or the myth of Phaeton and Phaeton's fall to Earth, in which Plato specifically says it's an extraterrestrial body. 
and anybody can go and find a copy. I recommend the Jowett version, which is my favorite. It's the older classic version. But what was the fall? The, what was the fall to Earth? Who's Satan? Fa- Satan. Phaeton. P H A E T O N. Fay. Phaeton. Phaeton. Huh. Not Satan. I thought you said Satan there. (laughs) What? Well, interestingly, remember what did Satan do in the stories of Lucifer? He was the fallen angel. Fall to Earth, yeah. Right, right. Who was Zontemach to the Mayans? He was the the god that fell to Earth. We can find the myth of the falling god scattered all over the world. Yeah. And I think it's all pointing to the same the, thing. The, the story and, of the Nephilim and the Watchers, the yeah, the fallen ones, all that stuff mm-hmm. as well. Who, yeah. who was Phaeton? So Phaeton was the son of Helios, the sun god. And as the story goes, uh, probably the best account of it is in Bullfinch's mythology. But any book on Greek mythology should have the story of Phaeton. He was the son of Helios who attempted to drive the chariot of the sun. And it's described as... Uh, traveling along the plane of the ecliptic, but because Phaeton was not able to control the great steeds that pulled the chariot, uh, it deviated off of its regular course, which is along the plane of the ecliptic, and swept down and set the earth on fire. And then um, in the myth, it describes the whole thing, you know, the boiling seas, the massive fires, the collapse of cities, the destruction of species, um, and then Jupiter finally, after entreaties from from Poseidon, because Poseidon is afraid that the oceans are going to boil away, he entreats Zeus to to put an end to it. So Zeus mounts uh, the heavens and hurls his thunderbolt at Phaeton and strikes the chariot, which then falls to earth. Phaeton's remains fall into the river Eridanus, which is a metaphor for the uh, Milky Way. And then Phaeton's sisters, the Heliades. Weeping over his death, their tears fall to earth and cause the great flood. Interesting, so, but I, I looked up. I looked, I looked up Phaeton on Wikipedia here on my phone, and uh, there was also a hypothetical planet that was believed to been the asteroid. What is now the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter? That's interesting too. Yeah, I don't go there because you don't need to. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if we're talking about an object that, um, you know, there's there's some very interesting work coming out of the Comet Research Group, coming out of the British neocatastrophists, um, the, the Holocene Working Group, others that have been looking at the, uh, basically, the architecture of the solar system and understanding that, you know, there, that we inhabit a very dynamic solar system. That is why, getting back to what we started this conversation with, the idea of we live on such a dynamic planet because this dynamic planet is part of a dynamic solar system. Mm. And every month now, pretty much, we're seeing the, the flotsam and the jetsam and the cosmic debris flying by the Earth to remind us that, yes, we live in a dynamic solar system. And we better start taking uh, the long view and the big picture, or we're going to get caught with our pants down just like uh, our, our ancestors have done. And um, right at this on, point, there's no excuse for it. What's the uh, the, the role of Gobekli Tepe at the time period of Gobekli Tepe? And then, well, Rob, and then Rob has a question for you, too. Okay. From... From my discussions with Graham, I think that the the, the uh, excavation that's been done so far 
has been dating too interestingly about 11,500 years ago. And I think, I'm not sure what the margin of error is on that. I'm going to guess it's several centuries either way because they're, they're radiocarbon dating organic material that was used in the plaster, I think, that was on several of the, the stones. Um, since there's so much more that needs to be, that remains to be excavated, I'm holding out to see if some of the deeper buried uh, sections of, of that structure don't date much older. But it certainly does seem to date right to a very significant period of global change. And I've always looked at it and thought that the burying of it was interesting and, and suggestive. Um, because if you're trying to preserve something against uh, destruction by the kind of events we're talking about, you bury it. Think about, we, we talked earlier about um, the reference to, to nuclear winter. Well, in the case of nuclear war, you know, think think about nuclear strategy for a minute. When we look at the history of uh, the Cold War, what do we see like coming from both sides? Um, how are we going to survive a nuclear war? Well, it was by burying uh, yeah. missile silos, by burying uh, the hardened command and control centers. And the reason we're burying them, why is because we're trying to uh, insulate them from uh, high-energy bursts, high-energy explosions. What we've learned from Tunguska event of 1908 is that objects that are lower density, say, than an uh, iron asteroid, something that is coming in, say, between the density of a cometary nucleus and a stony asteroid, if it's not over, say, 500 feet or 1,000 feet in diameter, it's going to explode in the atmosphere. And you know when, um, when the U.S. bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, People might have this, you know, kind of conventional version. You drop this bomb and it's falling down and then it hits the ground and explodes. Well, when you do that, then then a lot of that energy is going to be absorbed by the ground. That's not how they did it. They, it was detonated in the atmosphere. Yeah, it was air so burst. The radius of the destruction uh, yep. was much greater. And that was intentional. That was part of the plan. And so when you look at Meteor Crater in Arizona, it's about three-fifths of a mile in diameter and 600 feet deep. This was an iron asteroid, and it was probably about the same size as the Tunguska object of 1908, which is about 150 feet, say, in diameter. The difference is that you have uh, an iron object striking in Arizona, and the density of that object is going to be closer to, like, a piece of cast iron. The object over Tunguska was lower, much lower density. It was somewhere between the, the density of a piece of ice and, and a typical rock, somewhere in there. So at that size, it was not able to penetrate fully through the atmosphere and strike the ground. So it exploded in the atmosphere about five miles up. The energy released has been estimated to have been about 15 megatons, which is about the size of the largest hydrogen bomb ever tested by uh, is that the, the U.S. government. The, yeah, the, 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 Zar, the Zar Bomba? That was the largest Soviet. That, I think, was about 55 megatons. Golly. That was the largest nuclear bomb ever tested. Star Jesus. Bomb. Yeah. Yes. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so uh, 15 megatons is about 15,000 times greater than the bomb, that uh, the atomic bomb over Hiroshima. Yeah. So if that had exploded, say, over Nashville, 
Nashville wouldn't exist in the aftermath of that. If it exploded over downtown Atlanta, it would pretty much wipe out everything inside the perimeter 285. Um, so anybody wants to look at a map, you know, it, it would basically be a city buster sized explosion. It could wipe out any major metropolitan area on earth. That's a 15 megaton explosion. And that's about the size of the Tunguska event. All but, I can say is thank God for Russia, because if that thing had, I mean, had it exploded over any city center, just that it, it fell in this remote area that no one knew. It, it, no one really thought about it afterwards till the 1920s till they sent somebody out there just imagine if that thing it. imagine if that thing had exploded over any city at that time well it would have completely changed 20th century history yeah i mean history would have been completely you know altered onto a completely different trajectory at that point um if that had happened um, as it was, like you said, no, nobody even got to the site. No scientifically trained individual got to the site until the late 1920s. And there, the, the, the story of that is, is so incredible. And, and the story of Leonid Kulik and the, the, the truly one, it was one of the truly heroic scientific expeditions of the 20th century. That would be worth doing a movie on, um, cause it's such an incredible story. And, you know, when he finally got to the site and, and was trying to process what he was seeing, even 20 years after the event, mm-hmm. it was almost unhinging because the, the, the area of devastation was so vast. And um, it really wasn't until Hiroshima that they began to look at the, at the and compare, and then, yeah. the, then the atomic bomb tests and hydrogen bomb tests afterwards began to compare those yes. to what happened in 1908 and figured out what exactly happened. Uh, that's right. Rob, speaking of comments, Rob has a question for you. Okay. Yeah. Um, actually, I got this from Adam, uh, I believe, after a, a visit to you. Yeah. Down mm-hmm. in your home. Um, he said there was, he was talking about this uh, a string or uh, like a series of uh, fires or natural, like smaller natural disasters that all sort of formed a line that you were talking about. And one of the cities that occurred in was Manistee, Michigan, which is where I grew up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, right. And I, I kind of, right. I dug into that a little bit, but it's really, it's kind of hard to find information on it other than the fact that there was a large fire there. I was just wondering if you knew any more about it or. Well, there was a large fire there. There's not that much known about it because apparently it was extremely fierce. Uh, it was very rapid. Um, it happened at the same time, almost to the minute as the Great Chicago Fire and the Peshtigo Fire. Now, the Great Chicago Fire is considered to be the ur- greatest um, urban disaster in American history, uh, or, or greatest urban fire disaster in American history. And Peshtigo, Wisconsin, is considered to be the greatest uh, or most destructive forest fire in American history in terms of, of people lost, property lost, and so on. Both of those uh, fires, according to all of the documentary evidence, happened simultaneously, which was right around 9 o'clock Sunday evening, April 8, 1871. Same thing happened. How do you say it? Min- What's the proper pronunciation? If you grew up there, you hopefully... It, <laughs> I've never known exactly how you pronounce it. It's Manistee, like Manistee. Manistee. Yeah. Did I say it right? Yep. 
Manistee. Okay, almost rhymes with manatee. Yeah. Manistee, right? Okay. So Manistee also went up in flames, and it was a huge fire there. But the only thing there was a lumber camp in 1871. So... They don't know exactly how many people may have died. It may have been several hundred, um, but nobody knows for sure. And so the documentation of that is not nearly as extensive as for either the Chicago fire or the Peshtigo fire, which was on the almost like at the same latitude, but on the other side of Lake Michigan from Manistee. Um, but there's enough evidence to, to, to show that, yes, there was a, an outbreak of, ex, of extreme, intense forest fire in Manistee at the same time at nine o'clock at, at, um, Sunday evening, April, uh, October 8th, 1871. So I, I don't have a lot of documentation on that. Um, I probably have something here though. Um, I could perhaps pull up, uh, let's see. Now is the, is the idea here that these were that this was some kind of like a, a meteor shower that ca- that may have caused these fires. Well, it's, instead no. of, instead of the cow. <laughs> yeah. Well, the cosmic cow. Yeah. <laughs> it was the cosmic cow. Um, Taurus. This has yeah. not been, this has not been a, um, a, a, a you know, a, a conventionally accepted idea by any means. It was, however, first proposed by Ignatius Donnelly in his book on Atlantis, uh, Ragnarok, the Age of Fire and Gravel, where he, it's not, was, the book was not specifically about Atlantis. It was written as a follow-up to his book on Atlantis, but it was basically where he's describing the catastrophic changes that ended the last ice age, interestingly. And he attributes all of this to the impact of a comet on Earth. Um, in his afterward or later chapters, he does talk about the Peshtigo fire and the strange coincidence that the Peshtigo fire and the Chicago fire happened at the same time. And what he does is he was possibly attributing it to um, an encounter with the debris from Comet Biala. And if so if anybody wants this, I don't have the book in front of me, but... Um, if you wanted to read that further, it's uh, Ignatius Donnelly, Ragnarok, Age of Fire and Gravel. And he made that idea um, and made that connection that possibly there was an extraterrestrial link, but it went nowhere. I mean, it was pretty much ignored. And, and, and in fact, you know, like you said, the cow, people talk about the cow and this and that. Nobody really looked into it. The Pashtigo fire was pretty much forgotten. Um, except for locals, just like the Manistee fire mm-hmm. was for the most part forgotten. Um, and then I encountered it when I read Age of Fire and Gravel in the late 1970s, when I was really getting interested in the idea of impacts and catastrophes and mass extinctions and all of this. And I thought that was a very interesting idea. And so I started looking into it more and more, and, and um, it finally culminated in 1997 when I was working on uh, a TBS CNN documentary called Fire from the Sky. And we included a segment in that documentary on the Peshtigo, the, the correlation between the Peshtigo fire and the um, Chicago fire. And I had already managed to get my hands on a fair amount of material, documentary material 
particularly about the Chicago fire. But so while we're filming, I, we went up and we uh, went to the fire museum at Peshtigo. So I was able to um, meet the curator of the museum. He's actually featured in the documentary and he made accessible to, accessible to be a bunch of the eyewitness accounts that had never been published. Um, and that he said, well, these, these have been here for years. Nobody's really taken a big interest in them. But um, as I started going through those, it got more and more interesting because some of these eyewitness accounts, I'm going, wait a second, this sounds like things I've, I've you know, I've read before. Um, it's totally consistent with the idea that, yeah, people were seeing things fall out of the sky just prior to the outbreaks of the fire. And, you know, people describing how, um, you know, the fires were completely unlike normal forest fires. Now, these are people that have been living. These were, you know, Pashtigo was a lumber town, uh, a lumbering community. They make their, made their living from the woods and from harvesting the, yeah. the, the pineries. And they had experienced many forest fires. And so you had eyewitness accounts from, you know, people saying, so yeah, we've been through many forest fires, but this was something totally different. This was, um, this was fire from the sky. And, huh. you know, typically they, um, you know, this, the standard procedure was, you know, you would have a group of buildings or a farmstead and you would do a clearing around it. That was the fire break. And so what was being described over and over again was things like people did, you know, the natural thing is they assumed, well, if there's a forest fire and it's coming through the trees, they would run to the, to the center of the fire breaks. And then a tongue of fire would come out of the sky and consume them literally in seconds they would be turned to ash. What, what about, so, in, what about in Manistee? Were there similar accounts? Yes, um, okay. there were. And, but again, not nearly, um, as extensive just because there wasn't as many people, there wasn't as many, um, sure. eyewitnesses, but there are accounts. Um, and I probably, I do have some, uh, actually, um, Let's see. Uh, I may have some here, um, but yeah, it was part of it was the the rapidity which the um, the fire came out. Like here's a quote. Now this isn't from. Um, it was a uh, one of the survivors. It's here's the character of this. This is from an eyewitness survivor. The character of this fire was unlike any we have ever seen described before. It was a flame fanned by a hurricane and accompanied with various electrical phenomena. Those that survived the terrible ordeal testify that they received electrical shocks while they saw electrical flames flash in the air and dance over the surface of the earth around them. But the fury of the flash was passed in half an hour, though the fire continued to burn more or less fiercely during the whole night. Another survivor says, no tongue can tell, no pen can describe, no brush can depict the realities of that night. Exaggeration would be utterly impossible. It defies human ingenuity. It was the destruction of Sodom reenacted. It seemed as if the wickedness of the place had mocked God until his fiery thunderbolts were loosened for its destruction. So... And, it, it, and so the eyewitnesses are filled with stuff like this over and over again. People completely blown away by what they experienced and saw and witnessed. Like, 
Now a bright, the bright light appeared in the southwest horizon, gradually increasing till the heavens were aglow with light. But a few moments elapsed after this before the horrible tornado of fire came upon the people and enveloped them in flame, smoke, burning sand, and cinders. Sounds like a firestorm. Yeah. God only knows the horror and terrible suffering of the whole town of Peshtigo on that memorable Sunday night. It seemed as if the love of God had been withdrawn from the place and the fiery fiends of hell had been loosened to wantonly vex and torment the people. So how much of this do you need to hear? Yeah. Uh, uh, That's kind of flowery 19th century language, you know. What, yeah, is it a straight line from Pestigo to Manistee? Because I know that, almost. Yeah, now, okay. okay, I did. I did find here. Here is a a quote um, from the Michigan side. Um, About nine o'clock Sunday night, a terrible tornado swept down from the southwest through the western side of the county, carrying death and destruction in its awful career. The fire did not come upon the people gradually from burning trees or other objects to the windward, but the first notice they had of it was a whirlwind of flames in great clouds from above the tops of the trees, which fell upon and enveloped everything. The atmosphere itself seemed to be on fire. The poor people inhaled it or the intensely hot air and instantly fell down dead. Man, your hometown got messed up, Rob. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Now, is the, the idea, idea is the idea that this is the torrid meteor shower? Does it take place around this time? No, not okay. in the torrid. Here we go on the east shore of Lake Michigan, the city of Minis. They're calling it Minista, um, but this is from back then. And the town of Holland were almost entirely destroyed. The same fires prevailed throughout all the pine country bordering on Lake Michigan, Green Bay, and the southern shore of Lake Huron. Governor Baldwin of Michigan estimates that at least 15,000 people in his state lost homes, clothing, crops, farm stock, and their, all their provisions by the fire. The devastation in Wisconsin was still greater. Very extensive and disastrous prairie fires occurred in western and central Minnesota, just before these calamities set in, thus making the first fortnight of October A.D. 1871 a period wholly without a parallel in the history of the world for the extent of the fiery devastations which it witnessed. And so when you get into it, you realize that there was probably at least a half a dozen places that were, went around completely consumed by fire all at the same time, all between 9 and 9 to 30 on uh, that Sunday evening. So, yeah, and then I could go on. I could find, you know, where, um, yes. Uh, yes, let's see. Um, yeah, here, um, through the dense smoke could be seen to the south of the town, a dull red glare near the horizon. Again, a breeze sprang up from the southwest, and the air was hot as a Sirocco. Then came a low, rumbling noise, like the distant approach of a train of cars. The noise increased to a heavy roar, variously described as like the noise of thunder or a mighty wind, and the startled people rushed into the streets to ascertain the cause. 
the roar increased and burning coals began to drop in the village like stray meteors of the night and then as thickly as the snows of winter. Many of the survivors represent that the shower of coals was as dense as a heavy snowstorm. In less time than it takes to write it, the wind had reached the force of a tornado, the buildings nearest the woods were on fire, and the very air itself seemed an atmosphere of flame. Randall, what's your theory on this? What do you think happened here? Uh, well, <clears throat> October 8th. I should actually just let anybody listening to this who's interested do the research themselves and see what they come up with. But, yes, there is something on October 8th. And it has to do with the great dragon. And maybe we'll leave it at that. Because this is sort of um, one of the things that I'm working on in my book. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. See. We'll, we'll leave it cryptic for now. That's a good... We will leave that's it a, cryptic. That's a good place to stop for Conspiranormal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Randall, uh, tell us, we're running out of time, but tell us what you're working on and uh, what's next for you. And um, when, when, is the, when is the book coming out anytime soon? Uh, well, if I quit doing podcasts, it probably will. Sort <laughs> <laughs> of sound just like Dr. Future. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. I'm writing about 1,000 to 1,500 words a day. Uh, except when I get interrupted, I, you know, I came back two weeks ago from a what, 12, 12 day trip out to the four corners area, um, uh, Northern New Mexico, Northern Arizona, Utah, and Colorado, and basically investigating what the 19th and early 20th century geologists called the great denudation, which was the massive stripping, the massive erosion that has taken place on the Colorado Plateau since it was uplifted a few million years ago. And my initial take on this, that I was basically looking for um, evidence to support geomorphic evidence, is that the Colorado Plateau preserves evidence of periodic catastrophes. And that if we can sort through this and look at the... um, amount of erosion that has occurred, and if we can determine whether that erosion happened um, periodically or um, continuously, uh, we'll have a pretty good idea. And and all the evidence that I looked at suggests to me that it's a periodic phenomena. I don't know if you've ever traveled over Canyonlands area of Utah, No, you know, Garden of the Gods, Monument Valley. I would love to, though. Um, Oh, you need to, yes. And in fact, I'm planning more trips out there because there's so much to be learned. The The landscapes of this planet are just now beginning to yield up their secrets. And the story they have to tell is inconceivably powerful and vast. And so the major part of my work lately has been attempting to decipher this story that's etched or inscribed into the landscape of this planet. And that's essentially the substance of the book. And it provides, I think, a context for having an intelligent discussion about what may or may not have happened in cultural terms or in terms of civilizations 10 or 20 or 30,000 years ago. Because we have to understand how extensively this planet has been remodeled from time to time. And that we are now literally, I mean literally, 
living on top of the wreckage of former worlds. And in fact, we have built our world out of the wreckage of former worlds. Literally, when you look at a modern urban area and you look at the buildings and the infrastructure that are built out of concrete, that concrete is 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 taken from the carbonate rocks and the gravel deposits that mantle this planet. Those gravel deposits are literally the rubble of former worlds that once existed. And so we have built a new world on top of the wreckage of an old world, and we're only just now beginning to recognize that, yeah, that, that we're sitting on top of this thing. And it's ready to tell it, tell us its story. And we are just now finally to the position where, for example, 25 or 30 years ago, those proxies at the base of the black mat, the magnetic grains, the microspherals, the nanodiamonds, the iridium anomalies, the platinum anomalies, we wouldn't have known about those because we couldn't perceive at that, that degree of precision. Now we can. We have, you know, uh, electron microscopy. Um, we have these um, advanced technologies that we can use to look at things on the nanoscale level. And we're discovering that, yeah, the microscale evidence is confirming the story, the, the, the conclusions drawn from the macroscale evidence, that we can look at the planet, and this entire planet is covered with the scars and the remnants of great disasters that have repeatedly affected the planet. Most of these disasters are being driven from outside exogenically, and we're simultaneously beginning to understand that the universe, or at least the, the, the space around us, near-Earth space, is densely inhabited with, with material, and our encounters with this material has been one of the primary factors driving not only um, evolution of life on this planet, but also the evolution of history, uh, cultural history on this planet. So that's the paradigm shift that we're in the middle of, and I'm doing everything I can to accelerate that paradigm shift and get people to start getting their heads up out of their asses and the superficiality <laughs> and triviality of all the crap that people are con consumed and concerned with, and look at the big picture. Because if we don't do that, you know, we're going to have, the at some point in the near future, and mm -hmm. I mean, near future could be a thousand years, it could be a hundred years, it could be ten years, it could be next year. The reset button will be pushed. Now, we have it in our hands at any given time to alter the outcome of history, but only if we're smart and only if we're paying attention. Very well said, sir, and I think that's an excellent place to stop. Randall, th Randall, thank you so much. Stay on the line for us, guys, and we will sure. be back to close the show at some point. I can spare it all Hey guys, this is Adam and closing out the show um, with Randall Carlson. It is quite a few days later and we just got back, Rob and I did, from Roswell and we had a really, really good time out there and right now it is uh, July 4th and the hearing the fireworks going off behind me.
Um, we enjoyed it. Uh, we'll have a lot more to say about it in the next episode, which is actually going to be our interviews that we did over there. Um, we spoke to uh, Guy Malone, of course, the organizer of the conference, Jack Brewer, Greg Bishop, Nick Redfern, Dr. Michael Heiser, um, and also we added in Joe Jordan, and we got uh, Natalina, who was there from the Extraordinary Intelligence podcast as well. So we have an interview there with her. It's going to be about three hours long, plus we're going to give you kind of like Rob and I's rundown on everything that happened over there. And, um, so be looking forward to that, guys. Roswell is a pretty interesting place. Um, there's lots of aliens, although not the real kind, just the wooden kind. But, you know, it is what it is. So I want to thank you guys for listening. And, uh, we will be back next time with our Roswell interviews. And in a couple of weeks, we will also have Timothy Renner on to talk about uh, Bigfoot in Pennsylvania. So looking really forward to that one. So once again, feels a little weird to scream conspiranormal by myself. So over and out. Until next time, guys. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.